Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Your host, Roger Abel. Elias Randall, big surprise, is in the studio again with me. How's it going, Elias? Thanks for having me back. I feel like we're due to have a guest on the show. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I think people would like that. Jonas, he's always good. Sure. He's Jonas, always good banter. He can talk about someone. some haystacks and spare tires. Could get someone on here. I don't know. I don't know who. Jonas. Two. Doug Jonas. Wagner. Wags. We're already off the rails, Molly. Maybe someone from a mutual fund company. I don't care who it is. So it, one of the things I want to talk about is we've heard the recession talk for the greater part of the last year. And what a few economic experts are starting to talk about is just a rolling recession. And it, it's really not a common term that, that people recognize. They Most people think about a recession as, well, the economy just hit the brakes all of a sudden. And it, it's just bad. And it's there's speculation around that we might have a rolling recession. I think it's it's good to take a look at what that actually is. And kind of the definition of that is instead of everything going bad at one time, we have certain aspects of the economy that suffer at different points in time. So it could be the housing market. Then it could be, you know, it could be the job, the, the unemployment rate. It could be something else in the economy suffering, but not all exactly at the same time, which is what most people think about when they think about a recession. Does that play into the, the soft landing? Does that help us achieve a soft landing? I don't know, but we, the worst might be behind us. I'm not sure. But I don't know. I think Fed rates has more to do with a soft landing. But, you know, this is a few days after the, the Fed, the Fed meeting last week and employment, the, the um, unemployment number was considerably better than expected. We're like a 50 year low in unemployment, like unemployment. There weren't more people claiming on there weren't there weren't, weren't more people than expected claiming unemployment. I mean, jobs are still strong in this country. And if you think about what Jerome Powell's been talking about at his meetings, a lot of it revolves around we need to have more people basically unemployed to tame off inflation. Inflation's still here. I just right. read an article this morning that we could see another wave of price increases. A lot of it due to the fact that China's finally reopening. Why, why would that support price increases? Because their demand's going to go up. China's been closed for three years. So their demand for travel and hospitality, the strongest areas of job growth this last number was leisure and hospitality, which makes sense because if you didn't really do anything during COVID for a year and a half or two years, what's everybody doing? Everybody I know is going to concerts, they're traveling, they're going on vacations. It's not about purchasing things right now. During COVID, people were buying assets. They bought things. They bought houses, cars, vacation houses. Now we've moved on to experiences because we didn't get to do them for a long time. You know, my sister-in-law and her husband, they just jumped on an airplane and they're going to Disney this weekend. Well, how many other people that are sounds just, fun. You it, went there it, recently. Yeah, it was great. I just think it's interesting that that's where a lot of the 
job growth has been. And it's why, you know, maybe the rolling recession is happening. There's certain pockets that are struggling, but there's other pockets that are still hot. Right. And it's probably necessary. I mean, I, I guess I feel you could make an argument that, well, if the housing market um, either slows down or even if values contract a little bit, I don't really see why that is such a bad thing. I mean, it might be bad for in an, for an individual family in regards to the sell price that they could get. But at some point, especially the way real estate prices were going up, you, values of homes can't go up 20 to 25% every single year. That so doesn't work for people. So here's what's interesting. This actually just hit the newswires this morning. Um, Goldman Sachs, going into 2023, had projected a 6.1% um, price reduction homes. That's what the consensus thought was, hey, they're going down about 6%. That was on January 10th. Today they revised it to 2.6. I was that, watching. That probably speaks to this rolling recession idea. Yeah. And I feel like this recession is not, it's not like, it's not the same nationally. I feel like it's more, it's more like localized or regional where I know in Eastern Iowa, there's jobs, there's companies hiring. So I know while we're trying to increase unemployment, I know most places are still looking to hire and maybe they just haven't got to the point where they need to cut back. And then I also know that there are companies who are cutting back and and uh, and getting leaner. So I don't know. It's I I think one of the takeaways should be that maybe sometimes we can have a recession and it's not that bad or it's not that big of a deal if we get through this. And we get back to normal inflation. People still have their jobs. Because I feel like, here's one thing I've been thinking about. People do not like inflation, right? People think they hate inflation. Imagine how people will feel if all of a sudden unemployment's super high. And your neighbor's laid off and you lose your job. I think you're going to dislike that more than uh, more than inflation, I think, we would find. So, you, you know, I'm pretty tuned into the real estate market. Like, I like to watch the trends of what's happening so here, other places. And one thing I've noticed is that inventories haven't significantly risen and prices haven't significantly fallen. And I, I was reading an article and I, I wonder if this is part of it, that we're all discounting when we say, Hey, there's going to be this housing crisis. There's still a shortfall of housing in America. We're still short a few million homes. Yeah, like the there's very high. Yeah, there's very little inventory, so it's supporting prices. I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I watch all the YouTube videos and the TikTokers and all the predictors that were having this crash. Where is it? Well, and there also has to be enough people that are willing to sell for less money. And we're down. So think about this. Uh, what I saw yesterday, I was listening to watching CNBC at home. Mortgage applications were up a quarter percent, I believe. Mortgage applications are back and on the rise. rates haven't come down well, that they've, much. they've come down. They, for, they've come down, but not like a lot. They've come down from seven and a quarter to five and a half. Okay, you, I, you, I'm saying that from a perspective of we're all we all refinance, or a lot of people did for around three percent or less, and we're yeah, we're kind of back to like a historic, historically kind of middle of the road average. Yeah, I, type I think mortgage environment. Historically, five and a half's been a fair rate. 
probably actually low. The days of the days of three and a half percent. Don't you think those are gone? Like those are just gone. Gone until they need to come back. Well, I believe the current interest rate environment we're in is probably healthier for most people. A couple of reasons. I agree with that. One, it makes people think twice about taking on debt. If you have to go pay eight or nine percent, or you do a credit card that's at twenty eight, do you think twice about taking the debt on? Yeah, you do. You should. When it's free. I mean, seriously, when you go out and get a 0% interest car loan, do you care what the, you don't care what the interest rate is. It's zero. Whether it's truly zero or not, because you gave up a rebate or whatever to get it. People don't care. But when it goes higher, people think twice about the debt. But the flip side is too, for those people who are looking to retire and have accumulated for the last 40 years, they don't have to take all equity risk to be rewarded in a market. They're able to go to the fixed income world. They're able to go get some less volatile investments, which makes their peace of mind significantly better to kind of fulfill this retirement need. So I believe that a healthier interest rate environment is better. Zero is not healthy. Zero means you need help. That's why we went to zero. We needed the economy to boom. Well, it did that. Yeah, and I think for retired investors, I think it's great that they're – there are reasonable alternatives to owning equities. Now that's part of being diversified. You're always going to own some, but if you just, even just consider what people have said for a long time is the safe withdrawal rate of 4%. Well, there's money market funds that pay 4% right now. I'm not saying that's where someone should park all of their money, but it's getting a lot less challenging to invest for capital preservation and income, which is a lot of times what most senior retired investors, that's really their main focus. They don't, you know, they don't want to lose what they have and they want income and you can find solutions for that now, which is great. It actually makes our job easier. I think way easier because think about it before we had to be creative with how we figured out how to get people dependable income and to get dependable income before basically meant taking more risk. Yeah, that, that was it. It was equity you risk. You had to go out. You know, you think about bond quality. If you wanted to build a portfolio of bonds for an individual to have income, which has historically been a good place to find income and yield, well, now you're buying high-yield bonds, and you're getting like 55 6%. Well, are you really being – are you really being – rewarded for the risk you're taking when you get 6% in a high yield bond. I mean, the argument is probably not. Probably not. I mean, we remember when people were reaching for MLP funds and energy infrastructure. We know what happened with those. 11% yields till the price, you know, the share price went down 75%. So that's one good thing. I think people can say, hey, I need 5% of my, you know, 1.5 million to live on. You can go get almost a guaranteed investment. Which is nice. It is nice that there's reasonable alternatives to the equity markets right now. So we talked about this earlier today, and I think it's interesting. So I was, you know, did some information on uh, some vehicle pricing over the weekend. And this headline, I saw auto loan delinquencies are on the rise. And you asked a question, you go, how are people affording these vehicles? And I said, they're taking out mortgages. They're not, but it's the, most of these cars today are like the equivalent price of a mortgage. So I have friends and you do too. We both do that work in the car business. And you know, the whole, the average car payment is over $700 a month right now. 
I had a friend of mine who works in the car business say, I can't believe that, which and he benefits from higher um, car prices and those those being high. But I think it's really insightful. Just, yeah, how how can people afford how does the average person afford seven hundred dollar a month car payment along with because it's that's just not it. That's all you have to pay for. Okay, that's easy. But you have a house, you have a car. Most people have kids. And all this stuff, that's that's a lot of money every month to just drive a vehicle. I've got the answer for you. They can't. They can't afford it. I don't they're, think they're most taking, people can. They're taking the they're signing up for the loan. They they can't afford it. And I have the data to back it up. Uh borrowers who are sixty days behind was twenty six percent higher this past December than the previous December. Twenty six percent and people are two months sixty behind. days behind. Yeah. That's yeah, that's Which, a pretty rapid increase. What well, that means you're never getting caught up. No. Like those people aren't getting Hopefully caught up. Hopefully it also means there'll be some nice cars for sale at a nice discounted price. But think about it though. After 30 days, they report you to the credit bureau. So there, there's a couple of things are happening here. They can't afford to pay it because they'd at least like get caught up in the previous 30 days. They don't get a ding on their credit report. They're already short on money, which means now they have a ding on their credit report. When they go to borrow more money, which they're going to have to because they have a bunch of stuff they can't afford, guess what their interest rate's going to be? Higher? Yeah, higher. What happens when the money runs out? Eventually, the money runs out. Are there any car repossession TV shows? There used to be. There, you that, I mean, that's, you coming, the, that's coming back. What about airplane repossession? Did you ever see that one? No, I've never seen that. Airport, they're, they're repossessing airplanes. That's got to be quite the deal there. Okay, the greatest... And it wasn't necessarily a repossession show, but it was a towing show called Lizard Lick Towing. It's that's not about repos. I mean, basically, they they're re- going out and getting repos, but it's about towing. But maybe we're going to see a return of the the repo. You're going to have to. People can't afford these things, and the price of a car has gotten so expensive. You know, it used to be normal. You take a if someone's going to borrow money for a car, they take a three year note. Now they're doing like eight years because it's the only way people can afford these. That said, and I'm not an advocate of taking a loan for a car, but that said, cars are also different today. 25 years ago, if you bought a car with 100,000 miles, that thing's a jalopy. Like, you're signing up for problems. At 100,000? 25 years ago, yeah. Today you get a car with 100,000? They're just starting to get broken in. Like the engines and everything are different. 25 years ago, you're talking like about a carbureted engine. It's not like what you're in, driving. Right? Yeah, you got to break them in, right? I mean, I drove all of them. We, we went through the other night. My in-laws were over for dinner, and they're like, how many cars have you had? And we went through every single crappy car that I've ever owned. I mean, I own some really bad cars. I took over a 1982 Buick Skylark that sat in the corn crib for three years. You know that didn't right That's good. a gem right there. That was a gem. My last car I had when I met my wife, before I bought my first car, You know, these are the cars my parents bought me to get through college. It's a blue Hyundai. And uh, every time I started the car up, it shot oil out the tailpipe. I had to put oil in every single week. That's a special feature. But... Guess what? $700 car that got me through for three years of college. And it wasn't rusted out. Yeah. I think my first, well, my first car was free. My dad gave it to me. 1988 Honda Civic. 
Should have never got rid of that car. Got like 45 miles to the gallon because it was like a five-speed manual transmission. And then I think my second car was like $1,000 or 800 or something. Spent I spent my graduation money to buy a buy a nicer car to go to college. Actually, really, I got rid of that Honda because it was too light. I couldn't really drive it in the winter. I actually spun out one time just because the car was so little. It wasn't heavy enough to drive in the winter around here, but I should have kept it. I think it actually the guy I sold it to, I believe, still owns it and drives it. It's probably got 400,000 miles on it by now. It just goes to show you don't have to have a brand new car to get value out of a car. I want one. So I'm, you know, I'm reading this article about these, these delinquencies, what to do. And this is some expert writing. What to do if you're not going to be able to afford your car payment. You know what you do? Sell it. Sell your car. That's pretty simple. Like all this other stuff, try to free up cash. No, just sell your car. You can't afford the car. Sell it. Go buy something that you can afford to get. Um, you know, I just mentioned that eventually the money runs out. You're, late, you're 60 days late on a car payment which means pretty soon you're going and getting a credit card because you're going to need cash. What are you going to do on the on that card? Cash advance. Yeah, if you're 60 days late on your auto payment, there's other stuff. U.S. credit card credit card debt is up 18.5% to 930, $930 billion. Credit card Credit card debt is up 18%. At the same time, interest rates are up. People cannot afford what they're doing. It's just a complete lack of common sense what's going on in America right now. We almost have a trillion dollars of credit card debt. No, so do you rich think that's that? good or bad for inflation? Like well, if consumers can't spend money, that's probably a good thing for inflation, right? Well, that would help slow it down. It'll be a good thing for inflation once our credit's all gone. What do you mean by that? Well, then they won't be able to buy it. Oh, once the Until limit. Maxed one, it out. Once it's maxed. Okay, yeah, I got you. Yeah, there's, you know, the problem, here's the problem with the credit card. There's no people don't actually see the pain until they can't borrow on it anymore. Nobody looks at the interest rate as the pain because most people can't tell me what their interest rate is. I know they're required right. now to put like what the rate is in the payoff. Do you think anybody actually looks at their credit card statement? No, you know what they do? They go into a Bank of America or Chase, and they set it up on auto pay, and guess how much they decide to auto pay? Minimum due. The payment. Just enough so they don't get their credit dinged. They're not actually paying more. If I said to somebody who has 10,000 credit card debt, how much did you pay in interest last month? The overwhelming answer is going to be, I don't know. What they should be telling you is, oh, I paid $120. And they go, oh my gosh, $120? That's a lot, yeah. But that's what it is. They're not looking at it. Um, the average balance rose to $5,800. So it's a matter of time before all of this has to be unwound, you know, at some level. It, at some level, the craziness has to has to end between, you know, auto payments and credit card debt and record prices in homes. I mean, I know there's wage growth, but it's not that fast. And it's showing right here. When we start to talk about people being 60 days late on their car payment, people credit card balances increased 18%. It's all coming to a head at some point. You know, maybe that's the next part of this recession, right? It's we have a mortgage or not a mortgage, but a car repo crisis. We have all these cars getting repossessed, which drives car prices down. Probably won't affect new cars. Probably start to see rebates. 
But used cars, you can see them drastically drop in price, I think, if there's a bunch of vehicles repossessed. Yeah, and I think that would be the expectation. I think most of the people that I know that are knowledgeable of the car business do believe that used car values are – well, I think they're already starting to come down, and they will come down further. A year ago, I looked to trade my car in. I could have got more than what I paid. I just traded my car in, and I got a few thousand less than what I paid. So that's so it's already that's flipped. significant. Yeah, yeah, it's already flipped. Elias, I think it'd be good to give somebody some ways that they can tackle if they have credit card debt they're trying to knock out. And we, you know, we subscribe to the thought of doing a debt snowball similar to like Dave Ramsey. But the first thing somebody who has all this debt and these car payments that are behind, first thing they actually need to do is probably get a budget. That's a good but, first step. You know, and there's. You know, we talk about lifestyle budgets. You can actually go try to do a real budget. And, and I always use everydollar.com. That's a website out there. So if someone needs it, it's www.everydollar.com. It's free. You can go in and plug in what your monthly budget should be. Because most people, if we asked, how much do you spend each month? Someone who's 60 days behind on their car payment. And somebody that has their a bunch of credit card debt. If you said, how much do you spend each month? They don't know the answer. To that they don't question. know the answer. Even if you're not going to do the budget, figure out where you're spending each month. Like get a ballpark of what it takes to operate your lifestyle. That's the only way you're ever going to get out of this mess. That's called adulting. I refer to that as adulting. Some people don't do adulting till they're 53. Some people do it at 23. Like it hap it'll happen to somebody event at some point in their life. Like time to do some adulting. So I saw, and I don't know much about it, but I saw a YouTube reel the other day where this guy was talking about how if you're still making decisions like you're 18 when you're 40, your life is going to be miserable. And I just thought that was kind of funny. You know what it's like? Of course it is. Here's what it's like. You know, I've, I went on part of my news resolution last year was to like get to a healthy weight. When I saw my doctor, I should have used, I'm an, I'm adulting. He said, well, how did you do this? Like, how did you lose the weight? I said, well, you know, I just kind of stopped eating like a 14 year old. Got a little bit of Which exercise, but basically I started adulting. To do. Yeah. It took me till 43 to start adulting <laughs> with, with my, with my healthy lifestyle, <laughs> which is similar probably for everybody. But, uh, I, I eat less candy bars and potato chips and I don't eat sour patch kids while I lay in bed watching TV. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good habit to break. Oh, have you ever heard of this thing called the misery index? I have. Yeah. I think we, I think we've actually talked about it, but it's been, I think a year or two, but I think we actually talked about it in an episode kind of leading up to when all the, um, it would have been 2022, when all the, a lot of, all their potential recession stock, stock talk started, you know, when the big banks were coming out saying hundred percent probability of a recession. I think we covered, I think we had a segment about the misery index. I thought I heard of it. I, I didn't really remember exactly what it was, but it's pretty simple. It is the, basically the, uh, if you add up the unemployment rate and inflation, that gives you the misery index. And right now we are, uh, if you look back to historical numbers, we're at 10.85 on the misery index. 
The last president, we were at 6.91, Obama 8.83, Bush 8.11, Clinton 7.8. We're basically back to the highest misery index since uh, the Reagan the Reagan administration. Um, and then Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, which is really when we were fighting, really fighting inflation uh, back in the mid-70s. The, the, the misery index hit 16 back in the mid-70s. 16.6 is where, 16.26 is where it actually tops out at. Right. And these things are, these are the things I feel people just despise the most. It's unemployment and inflation. I think most people, you know, getting returns on your investments is great. And um, if you can be a successful investor over the long term, that's awesome. We have a bear market this year. Your account comes down, it's painful. But I think more pain, I think these things provide more pain in people's life, inflation, um, and then certainly unemployment. I've already said earlier on this episode that I feel if we really have a, a big up increase in unemployment, I think we'll all find that people hate unemployment more than they hate inflation. And people do not like inflation. We know that. And between inflation and the shrink... I said this to someone the other day, between inflation and shrinkflation, you know, the packaging at the stores, there's certain items now that there's barely anything in the box that you buy. I And I actually told someone, I don't think people, I think instead of buying like the Kraft, and this is just an example, not a knock on Kraft mac and cheese, but instead of buying that, I think people are just going to buy pasta noodles and cheese and make their own. At some point, you're not going to pay for the convenience of that package when there's nothing in there. Yeah, $2 for, you know, dehydrated cheese sauce. Right, and it's not that hard to make mac and cheese, but it is more convenient to make it from a box. Okay, so I agree with that. I don't buy, we don't buy chips in our house. Like, very, very rarely do we ever buy chips. It's not worth it anymore. Well, my wife, the girls, our girls want a walking taco. So, you know, I got the grocery list and I do all the grocery shopping. Doritos. It's like six ninety nine for an 11 ounce bag of Doritos. I go seven bucks. I remember when this is like two and a half dollars, you know, bought, you know, two for five or two for six. I'm, I mean, I was shocked at the price of chips. And in fact, what's happened, I've, I've joked with people that, you know, the inner aisles of the grocery store is where... Like you get all the deals and the outer aisles is like all the healthy food. And it's really tough to shop in the outer aisles because it's always been so much more expensive than the inner aisles. It's hitting equilibrium. The cost of vegetables has not gone up the same, the at the same level or same rate as macaroni and cheese and bread and all the other stuff on the inside aisles. I mean, there's no 39 cent option anymore. Back in the day, you'd go buy a mac, box of mac and cheese for thirty nine cents. That's a bucket right, quarter. Which that, that's worth the to me. That's worth the convenience of not buying the ingredients separate. It's just a package deal. Good example: Honeycrisp apples. They've been three ninety nine for as long as I can remember. Now, a lot of times, I get them for two ninety nine a pound. How is that? Everything else is double at the grocery store, but apples are the same price. Yeah, the demand for apples hasn't changed. I bought. Th- I brought this up to somebody. I was buying $5 eggs before it was cool. And what Why I mean would is you do that? Because we had to have brown, cage-free, range-free organic eggs. When you could buy 69-cent eggs, we were buying 4 or $5 brown eggs from the 
from the local um, co-op here. Well, good. If eggs went from sixty-nine cents to seven bucks, that's ten times the cost increase. Why didn't my five-dollar eggs go to fifty dollars a dozen? What, have, have they gone up? No, they're the same price. It's the same price to get buy brown cage-free <laughs> organic eggs as it is to buy the cheapy that smart branded Hy-Vee. Why is that? I'd have no idea. That's a really good question. Why? Why is lettuce still two bucks for a romaine lettuce? Why isn't it six? Like those goods, it, it's crazy to me, actually. Um, I'm just trying to figure out why my eggs aren't $50. If truly there's all this inflation, or is this just producers figuring out that they can make more money? Or combination yeah, of all of it. I, I, yeah, it's a combination of things and they're not going to cut back on their margins as any more than they have to so but think about it the transportation costs can't be different from one person to the next right like one distributor to the next so if they're saying it's all transportation related what is it I, i'm trying to figure it out i'm thinking i should be paying 50 bucks for a dozen of eggs right now but i'm still paying 5.99 and they're a beggar and they are a better egg Oh, I agree. I buy we buy our eggs from a family that has chickens, and we buy eggs off them. They're way better than what you can get at the store. And the reason they're better is because their chickens are running around just eating whatever they eat, and they're they're healthy. They take you can actually notice a difference. And I'm the type of person you tell me that oh it's a big difference. It tastes better. I'd probably not, but it, I do believe they taste better. I can tell when I crack the egg whether it's like a high quality egg or a low quality egg. Yeah, I agree with that. The shell's like a lot thicker. Thicker and the, the yolk stays together. Yeah. So with that said, you just got our industry leading synopsis on eggs. What's yeah, we're next, using Eli? we're using the egg <laughs> we're using the egg inflation index along with the, the misery index. Yeah, we got off the rails here on the egg inflation index. But you know that okay, but that's part of it, the misery index. That's part of it. That's part of the inflation because people no one wants to spend seven dollars on a dozen eggs. No yeah, one the grocery wants that. store is absolutely bonkers. I mean I, I ordered groceries the other day, it was like a hundred bucks, which is cheap. But I go told my wife I'm like, we didn't really get anything. I mean, it was we like five bags. items, hundred dollars. So I remember my wife and I, we used to shop at Whole Foods and we nicknamed Whole Foods Whole Paycheck. Well, basically Hy-Vee's Whole Paycheck now. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, it, it's all expensive. I haven't been back to a Whole Foods. I don't know what their prices are, but I'm curious if it's gone up at the same rate that our local, what we consider not discount grocery stores, but just local grocery stores have. Well, with that said... Thank everybody for listening. Hopefully you're not feeling the misery index. If anybody needs any help with anything, you can go to btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to help. Eli, you have anything else you want to say? Uh, if you'd like help, just reach out to us. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. 
Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.